as he opened the curtain. That's when I first saw immediately Rob Ford. Uh, he was basically bent over towards this woman's hand. And right then and there, I just heard an immediate sniff. And then he kind of just drew his head back and just gave like a sigh. And then after that, I basically kept the story to myself for a, about an hour, just writing the scene over and over again and trying to decide, you know, did I really just see the mayor snorting coke off of some woman's hand? I'm Jordan Heath Rawlings. This is The Gravy Train. Rob Ford was officially the mayor of Toronto. And it's fair to say that as 2010 came to a close, nobody involved in governing the city or even living in the city knew what the hell would happen in 2011. And that was true for Nick Kuvalis and for the Ford campaign, which was now attempting to form an administration. My head turned to, okay, now we've won, now what? Now what do we do? Now we actually got to go govern. How do we govern? It was also true for all the councillors, like Gord Perks at City Hall, who had fought against Rob every step of the way. And it became apparent that this government was going to be a disaster and that Rob was going to govern completely untethered from the reality of, of how the government works. Uh, you know, you, you always kind of hold out hope that the figurehead guy has people around him who will tell him the truth and keep him, keep him focused. But with Rob, it was clear that he had a bunch of enablers around him right from the start. And, and it was clear that it was all war all the time. Politicians and the people who cover them love to equate politics to war. But in this case, it was about as literal as a metaphor can get. Rob knew exactly who had elected him and he wanted to make it clear right away that he was on their side. Their side, by the way, was the one that you had to drive to get to. Ladies and gentlemen, the war on the car stops today. That was Rob announcing the end of Transit City, which was a complicated plan that would have modernized Toronto's transit system. The war on the car was a long-running scenario of Rob's. And to him, it was fought on three fronts. First, cyclists who annoyed Rob. He thought they were clogging streets and causing accidents. And even when, as usually happened, the people on the bike got the worst of those encounters, Rob's loyalties were clear. My heart bleeds for him when I hear someone gets killed, but it's their own fault at the end of the day. The second front was streetcars. Rob really hated streetcars. And to understand why, you need to know how Rob got to work every morning. See, Rob was coming in from his suburban Etobicoke home to Toronto City Hall, which was right in the heart of downtown. And to do that, he had to drive along busy city streets. Streets like Dundas. And Dundas had cyclists, and it also had streetcars. And it only has two lanes. And you can't pass streetcars when they're stopped with their doors open. And streetcars stop almost every block. And so Rob, on most days, would find himself stuck behind a streetcar, 
making room for cyclists, trying to navigate kilometers of Dundas just to get to City Hall, and it infuriated him. Part of Transit City involved building more streetcars. So Rob canceled Transit City. We will not build any more rail tracks down the middle of our streets. Transit City is over, ladies and gentlemen. The final front in the war on the car was fought in the city's budget lines. The vehicle registration tax is exactly what it sounded like. $65 per vehicle with the money funding road and transit projects. But it was a tax, and a tax that applied obviously only to car owners. So Rob cancelled it. I take my marching orders from the taxpayers, and when they say jump, I say how high. The war on the car was not the only fight that Rob was picking. And most of those fights involved taxes. See, Rob had promised at various times to eliminate, or at least significantly lower, basically every tax, except he'd also promised to run a functioning city. And so he had to find someone to balance a budget that was never, ever going to balance. And he found a man named Mike Del Grande, who you'll hear was eager to take the job. And I said, I really don't have a choice, to be quite honest with you. I said, I have to be your budget chair. Okay, I said, I said, not that I want it. I said, but everything from downtown happens with money and you got to have somebody control the money. And I said, it's a shitty, worthless job, terrible job. Mike invited us over to his home in Toronto's East End. When you walk inside Mike's home, it's apparent that he believes that if something ain't broke, don't fix it ever. In his hallway sits a vacuum that would fit on the set of the Brady Bunch. He's clearly someone who is good at saving money. He knew Rob from his days as a counselor, and he was trusted by the Ford brothers. So he became the budget chair. Rob was very smart because Rob said to me, one of the things he did say, not the most brightest thing, but he said that he wanted to surround himself with good people because he knew Rob was not a smart guy. Rob was the uh, bull in the china shop. Rob and Mike were mostly on the same page. They wanted to save the taxpayer money. They wanted to cut the waste at City Hall. What they had different definitions of, though, was waste. The first time that became evident was the fight over councillor salaries. City councillors in the summer of 2012 were expecting an increase of 3% in their pay. And Rob, very publicly, decided not to accept his. And so did his brother Doug, who had won Rob's old city council seat in the election that made Rob mayor. Doug even went as far as to claim he was donating his entire salary to charity. Rob and Doug's fight against their colleagues' raises didn't sit well with Mike or, as you might imagine, anyone else on the council. Because I said to him, I said, Rob, I said, it's really not fair. Um, You're a millionaire. And everybody's like, this is a regular job and stuff like that as well, too. And he turned to me and he said, he says, no, I'm not. He says, I'm poorer than a church mouse. And I thought to myself, Rob, you're full of shit. <laughs> I'm not going to fight you. But I know that's, that's not true. Now, this kind of fight over money in the budget became a fairly regular occurrence. Rob wanted something done, usually something cut or something frozen. And someone had to tell him why that wasn't a great idea. 
except by then he'd usually told people that he was going to cut that or freeze that. And he certainly didn't want to be seen breaking promises. But it would also become clear that he simply didn't have the votes to get those things done. And so when that happened, well, he'd leave it to Del Grande. Like he would just literally leave it and leave. I only got into a couple of really big fights with him. Um, one of them had to do on the budget. He went down to Florida, and I, of course, got left with doing all the work and stuff. And when, you, when you're doing stuff, you got to know who you're dealing with on the floor, because if you don't get the votes, Rob is only one vote. I'm only one vote. Okay? You need 23 votes to make it happen. So I knew, for example, I had to give up a quarter point of tax to keep the, the other guys happy, okay? Boy, he tore a strip off of me when he came back from Florida. Just went off the deep end. And I thought, like, shit, I've been busting my chops for forever for you. And we're talking a quarter point to get this thing through. And one minute, it's my budget. Then it's his budget. Then it's my budget. And I said, look, I, 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 I can't operate like this. I just can't. I'm killing myself and stuff. And then this is the, the payback at the end of the day. And I'm not making an extra dime for you, Rob. And I'm you know meeting with your staff. And I'm doing all this stuff. Rob wasn't there. He wasn't around, and I couldn't understand, where the hell is he? Like, Where's he gone to? Where's Rob? Was a question that started as a curious thing, then became a troubling thing, and eventually became a really big problem. For the first few months after Rob's win, he had been a regular blustering face around City Hall. But as the calendar turned and 2011 began, Rob's schedule got lighter, he was absent from meetings and from some public events. And his schedule would sometimes have big gaps in it. That got worse as the year went on, and by late 2012, the mayor was rarely seen at committee meetings, and sometimes he even ducked public council meetings. It was becoming clear that there were things that were more important to Rob Ford than being mayor. And yes, some of those things are exactly what you think they are, but some of them aren't. In fact, one of the major reasons Rob was missing from council was football. Here's Mike Del Grande explaining. Rob's heart was always in football, always in football. He was coaching football, kids out his way. And I said to him when he was uh, the mayor, I said, Rob, I said, you got to make a decision. You got to choose. You want to do football or do you want to be the mayor of the city? Okay. Because if you want to do football, then resign because we need a full-time mayor. And he thought he could do both, because he would disappear. He'd be late for council. He'd be good, going to do the uh, the football stuff. Like, he didn't have his eye on the ball. He just you know, assumed that people, not sure who those people were, were going to look after things until he got back or until he, he did. But not politics. Football was his true love. Rob's other job was coaching at an Etobicoke high school named Don Bosco and he would leave City Hall to attend practices or arrive late because he'd been running them, and he absolutely would not miss a game. And if that meant missing high-level meetings, he'd miss them. Doug Holliday, you might remember, who had helped the Ford family into the political game, had been named deputy mayor in return for that. And Doug tried to talk to Rob about this. He, he sometimes, like, I mean, he baffled me at times when he went to his football. Like, we'd have executive committee... And I'd have to take the chair because Rob was gone and he, he was off to his football. 
and then the media would follow, and they'd have pictures of him up at the football. And I just thought, well, you, how, you can't. You're mayor of the city. You can't do these things. You've got to be here. This is, this is your job. This is what you got elected for, you, not the football. I mean, it's nice you want to support these kids and help these kids. And I, I, I really, you know, a lot of people think that's as fine, and I do too, but you, you have a job here, and it's an important one, and you just can't step aside, go and coach the kids football when you've got important business matters here at City Hall. Football cost Rob more than just some council meetings. See, Rob loved football so much, he had set up a foundation to raise money for high school players when he was a counselor. And he was so passionate about this foundation that he would talk about it to anyone who would listen. And that meant sometimes lobbyists. Back when Rob was a counselor, he had been found guilty of soliciting donations to his foundation from those lobbyists. The integrity commissioner had made multiple attempts to get Rob to simply repay those donations, but he hadn't. And that was bad, but it still would have gone away if Rob had just written a check at any point, but he didn't. And so during a council meeting, the integrity commissioner presented her report that said she had made six attempts to have Rob prove that he'd repaid the donations. And Rob couldn't let that slide. So he got up in council as mayor and spoke to it publicly and officially. It's at that meeting that Rob Ford gets up and decides to speak to the issue uh, and vote on it and um, ultimately eventually gets himself into trouble. You might remember Adam Chaliff from episode two. He had been on a crusade to keep Rob's public finances honest. Adam had lost the first round over Rob's campaign finance irregularities, but he still wanted to prove that the mayor was messing with public money. Part of that was Adam's sense of fairness, but part of it, as he freely admits, was an attempt to tangle Rob Ford in scandals to make it impossible for him to get things done. We had an understanding of who Rob Ford really was and what he wanted to do. And, you know, Rob Ford made some absolutely outrageous campaign promises. But the overarching principle was, let's make this guy, you know, fight something else so that he's not actually getting around to doing the job that he wanted to do, which was to, in our view, light the city on fire uh, and, you know, disintegrate the things that I think make Toronto a great city. Um, and frankly, it, it was working. It would force Ford himself to comment on these things, um, and it would, you know, further take him off his own message. So Adam found himself at City Hall, filing audit requests and sitting in on council meetings. And by coincidence, he happened to be at that fateful meeting where Rob got up in council to make his case. So he wanted to let everybody know how unfair it was that he was asked to pay. And that decision to speak and make it, you know, so clearly important to himself uh, was what eventually did him in when he tried to argue that it wasn't that important, that it was such a small amount of money and the principle was, was so uh, minor that the court should just look the other way on this one. He made it into a big thing himself. Council voted on the issue, and they voted 22 to 12 that Rob should not have to repay those donations. So it could have ended there once again, except one of those 22 votes was Rob's. There was a, um, a lawyer friend who called me not long after that to say, did you notice that Rob Ford spoke about the, uh, the donations to the Football Foundation? 
that looks like a conflict of interest to me. You might want to look into that. So Adam and his team did. They recruited a third-party applicant, and they launched a case against Rob Ford. So uh, we argued that what you see is what you got, that we have a city councilor who uh, was on the hook for $3,150 of his own money and was dead set against paying it. Um, He should have known what his obligations were because he had been serving for such a long time as a city councilor and then as a mayor. And so RV was simple, you know, he should not hold office any longer. During the deposition and the trial, Rob's defense was interesting. He had been a city councilor for almost a decade, and he'd just been elected mayor. But he pled ignorance. So you have the 2000 election, you have the 2003, 2006, 2010, um, four elections. After each election, you get a handbook as a city councilor and you're offered training on all of the rules of being a city councilor. He says that he never really read the the rules, that he never participated in the sessions, that he had the most basic understanding that if there was a conflict of interest that uh, anybody was worried about, that the city's legal staff would let him know about it, Um, even though he acknowledged that it was not city legal staff's responsibility to do that. It was his responsibility. And he was, was, proud might be the wrong word, but he didn't seem ashamed by this at all. I was like, Just the lack of responsibility in in all of that was was stunning. Adam had launched this case, fully expecting Rob to win it. It was designed just to bog him down. But when Rob took the stand, he was so bad that the courtroom audibly giggled at his testimony. And then the decision came down. Guilty and kicked out of office. A provincial judge sends Mayor Rob Ford packing, convicting him of blatantly breaching a conflict of interest law. But Ford says he'll fight to stay. So my birthday was right after the lower court decision came out, and I wasn't planning on having a birthday party that year, but then suddenly I was having a birthday party. Um, but yeah, I mean, the uh, Justice Hackland suspended his decision for 14 days, in part to allow the city of Toronto to have a smooth transition. Um, but also, you know, it gave Rob Ford a chance to appeal. And so the first question that the appeal court had to deal with was, uh, would they stay the ruling pending their own decision? And they said yes. And so that gave Rob Ford some extra time to remain mayor while the hearing was going on. And um, But everything moved really quickly after that for something of this magnitude uh, and the work required. Just two months after Adam celebrated that birthday, Rob won the case on his appeal. He won on a technicality. The judges said that the matter that he'd voted on never should have been brought before counsel at all. So conflict of interest was impossible. I've heard through the grapevine. I have no idea if it's true or not, but it's been so long that I feel like it's worth speculating. Um, but, you know, through the grapevine, um, I had understood that the, the appeal court was just wholly uncomfortable with the idea of the judiciary removing a duly elected official, and they were looking for some way to make sure that they they weren't seen to be overriding democracy um, as a method of maintaining people's public support for the court system. I I don't know. Um, Could be one way or the other, but they, they found a way it, you know, was legitimate, and so he got to continue after that. Rob remained the mayor of Toronto. Adam went back 
to the drawing board. And in November of 2012, the Don Bosco Eagles were flattened 28-14 to in the Metro Bowl by the Huron Heights Warriors. So football season was over. But Rob was still nowhere to be found at City Hall. And as 2013 began, people were really starting to whisper. I mean, you think kids in kindergarten gossip. You should try being in government sometime. There were, I guess, some rumblings from staff that there were, there were some problems. A lot of people saying that they felt he was drunk, that, that he had been seen later in the evenings drinking in his office. We knew he really liked hard, hard living, hard drinking. But we didn't know whether it was a dependency or whether it was a weekend uh, kind of thing. And you heard about these incidents with, with Ford out on the town and there would be like some chatter about it. I would come in early and so, you know, I found a bottle of vodka that was empty. I found a couple of bottles of wine that were empty. They talked about finding empty alcohol bottles in his office. They talked about him clearly being drunk at evening events. I mean, there always was denial. Denial from his brother, denial from his family, denial, denial, denial. Rob's term as mayor had begun two years ago with a flurry of declarations and orders and policy action. He might not have fully understood the intricacies of executing the office, but he knew what he wanted to do. He was rewarding his supporters with the red meat he had promised them. He'd also made enemies, and he'd been frustrated by the resistance of counsel and the limits placed on his powers. And things stopped getting done, and Rob stopped showing up to work. By now, his schedule was as thin as it had ever been. He was only meeting with his allies on the council, and according to reporting in the Toronto Star, the most common item on his itinerary was private time. And that couldn't go on for long before the general public started to notice that something was wrong with the mayor. One of the great things about Rob Ford is he's extremely recognizable. Jonathan Goldsby was at the time a reporter at a weekly alternative newspaper in Toronto called The Grid. And among local journalists, he was an early adopter when it came to using social media to report on municipal politics. And as he did that, he started to see Rob Ford everywhere. You know, from the front, back, side, his voice, everything about him was very recognizable. Uh, And so when he would go somewhere or do something, pretty much regardless of what it was, if it was in public or if there were at least other people around, people would share that. People would tweet about it. People would post to Instagram. And so because he was so recognizable, because he's like this this beacon floating around the city, you could, to an extent, retrace his movements simply by searching certain terms on Twitter. Ford's office was notoriously secretive about his schedule. And so most of the time, the media didn't know where the mayor was. And Goldsby began tracking him down on Twitter and reporting it in the grid. The mayor, you see, was notorious for taking pictures with people everywhere he went. And the mayor was famous, so people would post the pictures on Twitter and Instagram. So, being the internet junkie he is, Goldsby would hunt through 
lists of searches for terms that might net him photos of Rob. And he found photos of Rob. Lots of them. And what I discovered is also his drinking habits. If you want to buy hard liquor in Toronto, Ontario, you only have one option. Officially, it's called the Liquor Control Board of Ontario. Unofficially, it's the LCBO. And it has stores everywhere in the province, and all those stores look the same. They have the same decor, the same cash registers, the same signage. And so if you are searching social media for photos of Mayor Rob Ford, and you start to see the same decor in so many of the backgrounds of those pictures... There were certainly certain patterns of what nights of the week, what times the night he was out, and then other photos of him where it, it, it had been clear he had been drinking, if not doing other things. And yeah, that'll come up for a politician or any public figure now and again. But there started to pretty clearly be a regularity to it. Goldsby began collecting these posts and publishing them in a segment in the grid called the Rob Ford Agenda. And as the posts built up and people got to know them, people took more pictures and their frequency started to grow even more suspicious. There would often be a correlation between how well or how, or how poorly things went for him at city council on a given day and him hitting up an LCBO and then being seen late at night. One of those particularly memorable nights involved Rob running into a bachelorette party. There are six women in the photo with him, younger, probably in their early, mid-twenties. A couple of them have pink boas. A couple of them have some sort of, like, pink fluffy antennae on their heads. And he is in the center of the, of the picture looking totally wasted. Uh, his shirt, he's not wearing a tie. His jacket's open. There are stains on his shirt. Could just be sweat, but they're definitely, there actually appears to be what appears to be sweat stains and then another larger stain below. His eyes appear to be closed and vaguely staring in the direction of the bachelorette. And he's holding a, what looks to be a blue liquor bottle, as well as some magazine or publication in the same hand. Uh, it may not be a liquor bottle. It's very possible. It's, it's also quite possible it's like a Slurpee or something because he would also get those. But uh, yeah, so that's the, that, that's, that's that photo. Throughout this time, Rob's office continued to publish his schedule. But it was becoming pretty clear that it was no longer an accurate picture of where he was or what he was doing. And even when he did include events on it that he was attending, he would often show up to those events late or miss them entirely, and nobody would tell you where the mayor was. It all started to fit one larger pattern of uh, what you started to know or figure out about him, but what does he actually do during the day? Because he didn't show up till the office till I think midday most of the time. He'd often be out late at night. Um, his staff didn't always know where he was. And... As it turned out, the most effective way to, to, to figure this out was to comb the internet. As Goldsby was diving deep into social media, trying to figure out the mayor's whereabouts, other scandals had been just kind of piling up 
not even really noticed, a lot like the scandals during his campaign. In October 2011, for example, and this is just one of them, a Canadian comedian named Mary Walsh, from a show called This Hour Has 22 Minutes, came to Rob's house. She was dressed, in character, a bizarre character, as part of an ongoing princess warrior bit, where she'd simply approach politicians or high-profile Canadians and try to provoke a reaction or get them to play along. It's a pretty harmless bit. Mayor Ford, it's me, Mark Delahunty. You know, I gave up all the old princess warrior stuff. But no, Mayor Ford, I came up to give you a hand, honey. Rob was not going to play along with Mary. To come to my home at 8 o'clock in the morning, my little girl's crying in the window, like, come on, that crosses the line. Rather than just smile for the camera or wave her off, Rob ran back in the house and picked up the phone. Well, he got upset about it, and his daughter was scared, so they ran inside the house, and he called 911. When he called 911, he explained what was happening, and the dispatcher told him, okay, we're sending someone over, don't worry. Ten minutes later, no one shows up, and Rob Ford is livid, so he calls back, and he tells the woman, quote, you bitches, don't you fucking know, I'm Rob fucking King Ford, the mayor of this city. Those are the kind of scandals that had come and gone around Rob for the previous two years. A few months after the Mary Walsh bit, 911 was called again from the Ford house. His in-laws were calling to report that Rob was drunkenly trying to drive his children to the airport to take them to Florida for the holiday. There were other 911 calls too. It would later become clear. But there was one scandal in particular that everybody inside City Hall seemed to know about nobody outside City Hall had heard about. Almost nobody. But it was really the, the big thing, the big specific thing that was an open secret in political and media circles was around his antics on St. Patrick's Day 2012. I didn't see him walk in, but from the rumors coming around, staff members and uh, other people speaking, it seemed like he was already in pretty rough shape. That's Leo Navarro. He was a busboy at the Beer Market, which is a big, upscale downtown Toronto pub on St. Patrick's Day in 2012. It was about midnight, and the kitchen was closing up for the night. But a special guest, sitting in one of the restaurant's private rooms, wanted a snack. My manager comes to me and says, Rob Ford needs a poutine because, you know, I'm guessing he's really hungry at the point at this point. But nobody was there because the kitchen was already closed. So my manager himself actually had to make the poutine for him. And so once he did that, he gave it to me. And obviously we had our main security guy standing there. So in order to ensure nobody would walk in randomly, as he opened the curtain, that's when I first saw immediately Rob Ford. Uh, He was basically bent over towards this woman's hand. And right then and there, I just heard an immediate sniff. And then he kind of just drew his head back and just gave like a sigh, you know. Um, I didn't actually see any of the drugs, but from experience of, you know, seeing people do these things, you just automatically assume these things. From there, there was an awkward silence once I walked in, obviously, because everyone had just noticed or realized that, you know, I maybe saw something that I shouldn't have. 
And in an awkward way of doing it, I basically said, here's your poutine. So Leo turned around to leave, and one of Rob's staff members grabbed his arm. He asked him who he was, what his name was, and then... He says, okay, Leo, you know, thank you for your service and what you've done here today, but here's my business card. Uh, We would absolutely appreciate it if you didn't say a word about what you saw here tonight. And just give me a call anytime, and uh, we will we will try and figure something out for you. So basically, it was a bribe, I guess you could say, in a way. And to be honest, at at that moment in time when I saw what I thought I saw, I wasn't entirely sure. So I mean, had this guy maybe not stopped me and give me his business card, I don't think I would have even thought twice about telling anybody about it. But because of the way they reacted to me seeing what I saw is what I think gave up the impression that he was, you know, doing drugs at the time. It is here that I have to mention that Leo Navarro worked on George Smitherman's mayoral campaign, which could potentially call his story into question. However, based on reporting from numerous outlets, and based on police documents that would later become public. We know a little bit about what Rob was doing that night. I'm going to read a compilation of the events that transpired, some of them allegedly, some of them confirmed in court, all of them pointing to a mayor who started partying early, stayed out late, was out of control. Rob and his staff headed to the beer market after pre-partying, drinking at the mayor's office. On his way to the bar, Rob allegedly called the taxi driver a packy and mocked his accent. While partying at the beer market, staff eventually got sick of Rob's belligerence and asked him to leave. So he and his staff headed back to City Hall. Two of his staff members who were with him that night were Isaac Ransom and Olivia Gondek. Isaac Ransom would later report that he heard Rob tell Olivia, quote, I'm going to eat you out and I banged your pussy. Staff, concerned for Rob, at one point unplugged his phone. Rob turned to one of his staffers and told him, I hate you, and shoved him down onto the office couch. At 2.30 a.m., Rob Ford stumbled down to the City Hall security desk, carrying a half-empty bottle of St. Remy French brandy. He told the security guard that he wanted to drive home, but his car had been stolen. He asked the guard to call the police. The guard reminded Rob that he had not driven there. Isaac Ransom again reported later that Rob told a female security guard he was going to eat her box. Another staffer got Rob into a cab and took him back to his house in Etobicoke. Once they arrived, Rob said that he wanted to go out again. And he backed out of his driveway in his own car and almost ran over his staffer. Nobody heard from Rob for almost 24 hours. And for a long time, the story of this night was a closely kept secret in city hall circles and in media circles because nobody could report it, because nobody could confirm anything. One year later, though, there was a very similar incident. It's a black tie event, so uh, everyone's dressed very fancy and 
Um, and it was kind of set up, you know, as you, you would expect, like a big fancy wedding with, you know, tables and and you were assigned a table to sit at and we were assigned a table with you know, people we didn't know. The Garrison Ball is an annual dinner held in Toronto. It's attended by 800 military personnel, soldiers, sailors, Air Force, and a few civilians. The ball raises money for the Wounded Warriors charity, and it's billed as an evening of pageantry and camaraderie. It's a big deal in Toronto. And this particular dinner was held on Saturday, February 23rd, 2013, at the Liberty Grand Ballroom near Toronto's waterfront. Guests at the event included the Minister of National Defence, the Chief of Defence Staff, and the Commander of the Royal Canadian Navy. And one of the active military personnel attending the ball was Navy Commander Nancy Setchell, who you just heard. Nancy couldn't say a word about this when the story exploded, because military personnel aren't allowed to talk to the media. But Nancy is retired now. We were sitting at our table, and, uh, I mean, there were lots of dignitaries there. The um, chief of defense staff was there. The head of the Navy was there. The um, minister of national defense, which is Peter McKay, was there. Um, there were all sorts of uh, people there. And, uh, and then I was like, oh, my gosh, here comes Rob Ford. And he was kind of bimbling along with his, one of his aides. Um, and then the speeches were going to start. And, um, and Peter McKay was giving his speech. So they were, like, trying to get him to sit down and sort of, like, get him under control. Um, what do you mean by get him under control? <clears throat> well, he was, he, was, he was very impaired. He was very intoxicated. When you say he was impaired, how can you tell? Well, I mean, it's that, like the classic uh, signs, you know, it's like rosy cheeks and, and sweaty, which maybe, I don't know, maybe that might be a natural state, but um, sort of the glassy eyes and slurring speech. And not, I don't want to say trouble standing up, but he was a bit stumbly. So the Minister of Defense was giving his speech. And Rob was next to Nancy's table. And his staff was having a hard time keeping him quiet. Um, and he was going around, hey, you know, and you know, I get a picture. He was happy to get pictures with everyone. And, uh, um, and I, you know, I got a picture. Uh, and then they were just trying to, because he was just going on talking and sort of not aware that there were some formal speeches going on um, at, the, at the event. So they came and they actually sat down like sort of two or three seats away from me at our table. And he was, they were still sort of talking through, throughout the speeches a little bit. And uh, he'd sat down at someone's spot, and then they went and moved somewhere else. And while he was sitting there, he grabbed their wine glass that was full and started just, like, drinking from someone else's wine glass when they were there and, and just sort of carrying on. And then when the speeches were done, that's when we got our pictures with them. And, um, and then he took off. Did you see him after, he, uh, after you took a picture? I didn't see him after the picture, uh, I think because they took him off uh, somewhere else. One of the event's organizers had noticed that Rob Ford was intoxicated. And they told Councillor Paul Ainsley to see if they could get him out of there without a fuss. But Rob didn't leave. He stayed, and that's when he had his drink at Nancy's table. According to reports, Ainsley then went to speak with Mark Tuohy, Rob's chief of staff at the time, and urged Tuohy to convince the mayor to leave. Tui denies this. And I should add that we tried to talk to him, and he refused. He said he had already said everything he wanted to say in his book about his time with Rob. Nancy, meanwhile, describes the efforts to get Rob out of there. And then uh, his aide came and said, you know, gave us a card and said, you know, if there's anything the mayor can ever do for you. And I was like, well, 
Like I just live in Toronto. I don't think there's, I'm not really looking for anything in particular from the mayor, but it was Mark Tui. He had these fancy business cards and was handing them out and was, and, uh, and going on. So we were just kind of like, oh, like what just happened there? It could just seem a little bit weird that, you know, the mayor of this, you know, giant city was at this very public event where there are lots of high profile and lots of high profile conservatives as well at the event. And, uh, and he was, he was, he was pretty far gone. You were there with your husband that night. Yes. Yeah. Did you guys talk about it on the way home? Oh, we totally did. Yeah. Yeah, we totally did. And, and he was just like, I can't leave you got a picture of that. <laughs> like, that was crazy. Um, but yeah, we talked about it and we talked about it like, you know, it was, it was a topic for quite a while afterwards. And I even put a picture of myself and, and Mr. Ford up on Facebook. And I said, you know, there ain't no party like a Rob Ford party. After years of whispers and rumors and two and a half years of Rob Ford as mayor, all of his behavior, the Garrison Ball incident, the beer market, the 911 call on Christmas Day of 2011, all of it was made public by a reporter named Robin Doolittle in the Toronto Star on March 26, 2013. And finally, the rest of the city would learn what people at City Hall were already saying about their mayor. I remember not sleeping the night before. I remember hearing the newspaper hit my door in the morning. Um, and it just, you know, it was the longest thing I'd ever worked on at that point. I think it was a few days later. I know it was April Fool's morning. I got a call on my cell phone from a number I didn't recognize. And that was this guy saying, I have a video of Rob Ford smoking crack. Do you want to see it? And that is next time on The Gravy Train. The Gravy Train is hosted and written by me, Jordan Heath-Rawlings. It is produced and edited, and the whole thing is stitched together by Annalisa Nielsen and Stephanie Phillips. It is also co-produced as well as mixed and mastered by Ryan Clark. Claire Broussard and Amal Delich offered their editorial guidance. Rob Purchase and Daniela Giantomasso handled all of the archival sourcing. And the additional clips in this episode are credited to CBC and Young Turks. Production assistance was handled by Lucas Ionetta and Matthew Mora. The Gravy Train is part of the Frequency Podcast Network, and you can find it as well as the other podcast I host, The Big Story, and a whole bunch of other really good podcasts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com. <laughs>